following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. I welcome you into Fellowship Bible Church, folks. Try to find yourself a seat here. All right. Welcome this morning. Glad that you are with us today. Glad that you're online if you are listening or watching by that means. We welcome you today. You know that we have been uh, studying uh, together the matter of critical race theory and wokeness and those sorts of things in this context. It's admittedly a very topical kind of series. Um, I have uh, been doing here, I think, three sessions now, and I've got 23 pages of notes that I have uh, typed on this, so it's become quite a tome for me. Um, But I wanted to go back and touch on some of these uh, matters. Welcome, brother. Good to see you this morning. Um, And so I think I'm not going to do too much repetition, but forgive me if I do uh, because I didn't follow through these notes in in, uh, page-by-page order here. But I'm just going to pick up in the question and answer session. Let me just review with you briefly. We said the first session that uh, CRT, critical race theory, is a false gospel. It has a number of other problems, but uh, from our perspective as Christians, the main thing is that it's a false solution to the world's problems. Uh, it's, it's really a reinvigoration of liberation theology, okay, which has been dealt with since the 1970s in the church uh, in, in our um, kind of immediate last couple of generations, and we understand that it's not the true gospel of Christ. We gave some uh, kind of basic clear uh, things, at least to me, and then we talked about some terms connected to the critical race theory doctrine, and make no mistake, it is a doctrine, okay, that is being promoted in the academy, that is in academia, and also now in wider society. It's just really exploded into society in the last few years. Uh, So we looked at a number of terms, we'll look at some more of those today, and then I took some questions and answers last time that had been posed to me or that I perceived uh, and formulated from uh, questions or comments that I had. So I I did some of those. Now we're going to continue with some of those Q&A and uh, try to move on through this. Oh, I had a question about uh, how Galatians 6-7 applies to this. You remember Galatians 6-7 talks about uh, the matter of sowing and reaping. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, you're gonna, uh, we're going to be very mature here today. I, I give that kind of caveat when I'm going to touch on something that's very difficult. People that are listening online are going to think with their uh, kind of uh, scholarly mind uh, and, and not uh, their emotional mind. Uh, This question was posed to me. I'm not making this question up. Um, Somebody said this, the black rates for abortion and fatherlessness are huge. The acceptance of government money is also high and corresponding lower employment rates. In light of this Bible verse, Galatians 6, 7, how could we not expect a different outcome on average for the races? Okay, you understand the different outcome is, the question is, are we going to get a different outcome for whites than we are for blacks? And I understand where that question comes from and the mathematics behind it, but I very much disagree with that last part of the question. That's not me speaking, that's the question, okay? We expect a different outcome. Here's my answer. 
not for the races, but for the behaviors. Are you with me? It doesn't matter what color you are. If you steal, there is a consequence to that. If you're lazy, there's a consequence to that. If you are sexually immoral, there's a consequence to that. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, or green. Okay? Uh, the fact that there is some correlation statistically between race and behavior happens to be true on a percentage basis, but it's not the race that causes the disparity. It's the behavior that causes the disparity. Uh, whites who behave in a similar way to the, so let's say, uh, bad statistics uh, will also have similar outcomes in their own white subculture. But that's not as easily evident because they're lumped into the larger statistics of the macro culture. I gave statistics a long while back about fatherlessness, which raised some questions. And uh, the percentages are, are higher for fatherlessness in the black community, but the absolute numbers are much larger in the white community. So why doesn't it become a, a, an issue in the white community? Or why isn't it seen as an issue in the white community? Well, it is in my book, because the behavior is bad. doesn't matter if you're black, white, or green. Okay? Kids need fathers. Wives need husbands. Husbands need wives. <laughs> um, that's how God has designed it to be. We'll talk more about that in a, in a bit, I think, here. So the, kind of you can wash out those differences by statistical, you know, uh, by mathematics, but the misbehavior is somewhat wiped out by analyzing it based on color. Um, the statement or the question about Galatians 6-7 seemed to indicate that race was the main issue, and I don't believe that. It's not. It's behavior. I want to reemphasize that. Somebody who looked at that statement from the outside, an outsider would say, oh, you're, you Christians are teaching that the Bible teaches different outcomes for different races. No, we're not. We don't teach that at all. In fact, the scriptures are very clear that in the church there is no such thing as that construction, that we are all equal before Christ. Um, another question, all races should achieve the same. That's, that's a presupposition. All races should achieve the same. And if not, then it must be that the lower achieving race is being mistreated. Have you heard that argument before? Okay. That's false. This is a false state. So all races should achieve the same. You start with that premise. That's not necessarily going to be the case for certain reasons. I'll elucidate in a moment. And if they don't, then it must be that the lower-achieving race is mistreated? Well, could there be other reasons? Is that, a, is that, a, is that a, a statement clear of logical fallacy, that it must be that there is only one explanation for that disparate outcome? No, we went over that some before. There are other explanations for disparate outcomes. Bad choices, that's the behavior side of things, natural disasters, less resources, poor use of resources, uh, external oppression, um, and so on. Genetics, which includes race, does have an impact on certain things. Let me, uh, let me pose some reverse kind of questions to what you might expect. Are white people mistreated because there are fewer of them on basketball teams than represented in the general population? Uh, it's not an offensive question, is it, Duane? No. Okay. Um, or what about football teams? Aren't there, are, are there more black men on football teams than white men? 
than 13%. I mean, they're great at that sport. Um, take another funny, somewhat funny example. I've heard the statement. In fact, somebody brought it up yesterday. Do you remember it, Tim? You said it, I think. White men can't jump. Although stated categorically, you know, obviously not all white men cannot jump. But it seems to be true in some kind of way. I mean, you see these guys who are skilled in basketball, and I mean, they're shorter than I am, and they can jump twice as high as I can reach. It's crazy, the skill, the abilities, the, the muscle strength and all that. And of course, it's not true in every case. But as a generality, there are certain athletic feats that, are, that black people are simply better at on average. Now, this is tied to genetics, but even here I cannot say that it's because of skin color. It's because of the entire package of genetic attributes that, are, that happen to be correlated to color. Color is not the causative factor of better jumping ability, but it's connected to it. Okay, so that's a somewhat funny example, but you can see how it's not that the, there's a mistreatment that causes these disparate results. All right, I've, I've said some, enough about that. I think I said some about that last time, oppression not being the only explanation for disparate outcomes. Um, another question I received, isn't the, uh, well, I think I might have talked about this before, isn't the society or government responsible for the oppression that we see? There seems to be this kind of strange dichotomy in the, in the minds of many people that there are human beings and then there are these other categories of things, two things in particular, corporations and government. And it's like they divorce the two things entirely. But what is a corporation? It's a conglomeration of people who are sinners pursuing some business interest, usually tied to making money, right? Uh, what, is a, what is government? Well, government's even worse because it's a conglomeration of people who are sinners who have a lot of power and can put you in jail, okay? So that's even worse. But really, if you just, you know, kind of think about, you know, families, groups of people, churches, groups of people, nonprofit organizations, groups of people, corporations are groups of people, governments are conglomerations of people with power, it's all people, okay? So there's not like this magical characteristic that, you know, government exists out there and it's kind of this separate thing. No, if, like the founder said, if men were angels, there wouldn't be any need for checks and balances and, you know, balance of powers and all those sorts of things. Uh, governments are made up by people, flawed, very flawed people, and so uh, it's not that there's something out there that's responsible for oppressions. It's people, if there are oppressions. Another question. Somebody asked this. I don't understand your one-race argument from Acts 17.26. Uh, I think Jan oh, Jansen's not here. He's upstairs. But he and I were speaking to a black man at the art fair who was a neighbor to us in our booth, in the booth arrangement. And he was uh, far left on the political spectrum. But uh, I, I said to him when he began to talk about the race issue, I said, really, you know, as Christians, we don't believe there are multiple races. There is one race. And you know what? 
it caught him. And he said, I agree with that. There's only one human race, humankind. Okay? And so that was, that was interesting. That, that uh, We came to that agreement at our booth in speaking about that issue. That is from Acts chapter 17 and verse 26. You should memorize that or the content of that verse. Acts 17 and 26, it says that God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Where did we all come from? You see, evolutionists really have no way of, of uh, avoiding the problem of what I call the kind of forest evolution view, that you have a bunch of you know, things that result, uh, say, let's say this, our view is God created Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve had children, we come from those children through Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The evolutionary view, people simplistically think about it like, well, you know, some chimpanzee eventually became a human. But it, nothing stops the evolutionists from holding the view that some chimpanzees in parallel became human and you have different races of them. That's, in fact, the, uh, really the basis of uh, the evolutionary view that drove Adolf Hitler that drives the view that chattel slavery is okay, that even drives the view that abortion is okay, okay, evolution. And so this idea that, there, that they might hold that there are multiple sources of the human, you know, the human race is really disparate. There's the blacks came from one line and the whites came from another line. I mean, that's how people can think. It's entirely wrong. The Bible teaches... Humanity is a special creation of God, and there is only one race. It's a human race, and we differ genetically in how much melanin and other characteristics we have in our bodies. Some have a deficiency of melanin. They're called white people. Others have an abundance of it, and they're very dark in their skin, and others have various shades. I've always wanted to have a, a big like um, a series of pictures of people's faces where it goes from like, you know, albino white to the blackest black that you can see and you just have the whole spectrum right there and you can see. This is one race, one human race, okay? Now, obviously there, are, there is the social construction. Everybody knows what you talk about, what you mean when you talk about race, you know, whites and blacks and, and all of that, but... The reality is there's only one. We need to think more like that. Okay. Um, yeah, if you come to the question from an evolutionary mindset, there's no reason that there could not be multiple human races that happen to develop along parallel evolutionary lines from an evolutionary forest, not a single rooted tree. All right, so um, I move on here. Uh, this is not exactly a, 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 the same thing, but I thought I would... Uh, touch on this because it comes into this whole issue. What is your position on microaggressions? Have you ever heard of those before? All the time, Tim, right? All the time. Microaggressions. Well, let me uh, read a definition that I curated, and it's this. Uh, Oxford Languages via Google says, here's the definition. Microaggression is a statement, action, or incident 
regarded as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group, such as a racial or ethnic minority. The word aggression, now I'm adding here, the word aggression is important to note, as such behavior is seen by some proponents as being a form of violence. Okay, a form of violence. It's sometimes, sometimes these things that are done, these incidents or actions or statements, are meant in an aggressive way, in other situations not at all meant in an aggressive way. So it's hard to broad brush the whole, you know, every possible way that a microaggression could be characterized. In the case of an unintentional or even completely innocent statement, there seems to be an oversensitivity and refusal to overlook what otherwise might be a harmless statement. Perhaps the statement is not entirely quote-unquote harmless, but arises from baked-in cultural factors that are difficult to eliminate as fast as other people might like. Um, Certain words in the English language, for example, uh, become offensive, but if those were not eliminated from your vocabulary, this often happens with older people. You know, somebody who grew up in the 30s, 40s, and 50s and was accustomed to using certain words would find that hard to eliminate those words from their vocabulary when they're 70 or 80, and now society has moved on. And you have to kind of be able to roll with that, you know. Um, But let me comment further on that because it's incomplete as far as that goes. Uh, A lot of examples of microaggressions are things that we would have called before, earlier, you know, years ago, or if we didn't know the term microaggression, we would have called these things insensitive, dumb, racist, or unintentional, or unkind. You know, that had an unkind implication. Sometimes I think what happens is somebody says something, they have no idea that it has an unkind implication to the hearer. The hearer has taken it that way, and the person who is the author of the statement did not intend that. Okay, one second. They did not intend that, but the person receiving it takes it that way, and they say, well, that, had an un- that was unkind, and they can express that to the, to the giver of the statement, and the giver of the statement can say, well, I didn't realize it had that implication. In fact, I didn't intend for that at all, and explain. Um, other examples are terminology issues that are accurate ways to express a fact or situation. What I mean there is something like, that person is living a sinful lifestyle. That's not a microaggression. That's a statement of fact from the Christian perspective. Now, the person who's living the sinful lifestyle will say, well, that's evil that you said that of me. That's a microaggression. We have to extirpate that idea from our minds. It's what it's doing is it's, this idea of microaggression is going to beat us down to the point where we won't say anything. Oh, that, that's, that's pretty big, though, but go ahead. You're being trained to be offended. Yes. That's correct, yes, I agree with that. The repetitive, ongoing 
training of what these are, how to recognize them, is training people to be oversensitive to this. It's kind of similar to when you tell young people that they can choose to be a boy or a girl from kindergarten, of course you're going to get more people who get this crazy idea that they can change their gender and this rebellious idea that they can change what God has given to them. Of course you're going to get, it's a consequence of that teaching. The consequence of teaching all the time about microaggressions is teaching people to be oversensitive and to be looking for these things when if they just, just relax a minute, listen to the person, take it on a more scholarly level, think about where they come from. Are they 80 years old? Do they come from the deep south? And all these sorts of things. I'm not trying to be dismissive of insensitive, dumb, uh, racist, stupid remarks, okay? I'm not. I'm just saying we have to look at both sides of this and consider it. Now, let me also uh, suggest a couple other things. Um, so we, we've talked about the definition. We've looked at a, a kind of a very broad overview of examples of microaggressions and, and how we uh, deal with them. Microaggressions are not truly aggressions most times. Okay? Would you agree with that? Not like somebody is saying something. Sometimes they are, yes, they agree. They're, they're, you know what we used to call that? Pushing somebody's buttons, right? Somebody's very clever about the society and situation and the times, and they know that person is sensitive about this issue, and they push that button. Okay, absolutely, that happens. And that's, that's wrong, okay? That's, that's sinful, bad attitude, not loving. So they're not truly aggressions, but another way to, to talk about this, they're not, truly, they're not really considered by advocates of this terminology to be micro. Exceptions, of course. Um, let's think about the aggression thing again for just a moment. Aggression signifies violence and evil intent. Seems to me to be a wrong label here. Um, it could be a misspoken word, it could be a misunderstanding, it could be culturally baked in and just comes out. On the micro side of it, a microaggression would seem to be a very tiny aggression, a very tiny thing, wouldn't it? What is micro? In mathematics, it's the prefix that means 10 to the minus 6. That's one millionth, right? It's not milli. One thousandth, or any of the other prefixes. Okay, it's, it's not a pico aggression either. Okay, I understand that. It's a thousand times worse than a pico aggression. But it's one millionth. It's small. But people who talk about microaggressions multiply them by a large number of orders of magnitude, so they really become macroaggressions. Take, take some unintentional statement that somebody said and blow it up into some huge thing and get them fired from their job. Is there Christian virtue in that? Christians are instructed in Scripture how to handle such things. You, you do believe the Bible talks about microaggressions, right? Um, if your brother offends you, go to your brother, right? The Bible talks about this issue. This is thousands of years old just with new terminology and a new level of offense being taught in our DEI training. Christians are instructed how to handle 
such things. The receiver needs to be just as sensitive about the giver and his or her situation and perception of the situation as they are sensitive about the thing that was said. Did I just make you all confused? If I'm the receiver of a microaggression and I've been taught to be all offended by it, I've been taught to be highly sensitive, I should also be taught to be highly sensitive to the person who has said that thing and think through why they might have said it. Uh, you know, from the world's perspective, maybe something happened in their childhood. Okay, now I don't subscribe to that psychological stuff, but you understand what I'm saying? If you're going to be super sensitive about the words that come at you, be super sensitive about the person who said them and say, do I love that person or am I just going to really jump on them because they've done a macroaggression to me and I'm going to go after them? That sounds like vengeance to me. That doesn't sound Christian because it's not Christian. So the receiver needs to be very sensitive. If they're going to be very sensitive about the words that are spoken, be very sensitive about the people speaking the words. It's unreasonable to feel terribly offended at a microaggression and yet treat the person who gave the offense as an evil enemy. Perhaps they're just like you in a lot of ways. Perhaps they put their foot in their mouth. You, ever, you never put your foot in your mouth before? And caused a microaggression? Oh, man. I've done that a few times. Yes, sir, Dwayne. It would not offend me that 20 years ago, an older gentleman, let's say 80 years old, would refer to me as Negro because he's back in the era in which he grew up. Um, I had an experience, Thurman Hunter and I had an experience some years ago uh -huh. where we were at the Whole Foods when it was at the location where Trader Joe's is now. Okay. And we were having a Bible study because we made it a point to go in and, and, and interrupt the people there. And there was a white lady who was that we know as a Christian, and she wanted to address us, and she had a question. And she walked up to us, and, she, and Thurman said yes, and the lady said as an African-American, and he wouldn't stop. <laughs> and she said, um, as a black American, and she, he said, stop. <laughs> he said, I am an American who happened to be black. Now, what is your question? <laughs> but none of us was offended. All right, Dwayne. Thank you. I've, I've, I've heard that story before, and... Uh, Delights me. You, you all have to talk to Thurman about uh, his, uh-oh, uh we have somebody who's upset at this teaching. <laughs> They're going to the nursery now. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Was it something I said or you said, Dwayne? <laughs> um, yeah, so it's very interesting. Thurman takes uh, some umbrage at the phrase African American. He doesn't have any connection with Africa now. He's too far removed from that to consider that a connection. Um, but he's black, and he doesn't mind to be called that or say that uh, at all. Now, we've talked about on the receiver's side, being sensitive. If you're going to be sensitive, be so consistently. But on the giver's side, a microaggression describes insensitive and unloving statements, actions, etc. They should be confessed 
but they are not unforgivable. They are forgivable. Okay? Somebody says something and it's like, oh, I wish I could you know, rewind time and take that back into my mouth and swallow it. Well, you can't because it's gone. It's out. But it's not unforgivable. Christians on both the receiving and the giving sides are taught by God to lovingly address such matter matters. Love covers a multitude of sins, and if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. You've gained your brother if he responds. It's Christians are told to lovingly address such matters, come to a better understanding, offer apology, grant forgiveness, and move ahead. Today, there's, there's no... Where's the teaching in your DEI instruction about forgiveness? It doesn't seem... Maybe it's there. I haven't sat in hours and hours of classes, and I don't plan to. Yes. Oh, they're training you to intervene even if the offended person is not offended. It sounds to me like you're sticking your nose into some other conversation where it doesn't really belong, which is not a biblical uh, approach either. Uh, Very interesting. So you see that you have, you know, again, like we said last time, you have this side battling it out against this side. Christians are standing back here and saying, wait a minute. Do we love one another? Love Love covers that multitude of sins. Do we forgive or do we become embittered and angry and try to get people fired and uh, make a big stink about something and all of that sort of stuff because I've been offended? We have to really apply our Christian principles to this. If people are giving offenses and receiving micro whatever they are as offenses, then there is no fervent love between them. If the giver is giving these things and not thinking, the receiver is receiving them as attacks, then there seems to be like that love foundation between them is gone. Do not kid yourself if you're in this mindset. If you're holding something against another person, you're not fervently loving them. Well, He said something to me that was insensitive. I'm not going to tell him that it was insensitive. I'm just going to hold it in my heart, and I'm just going to be angry. And I'm not going to have anything to do with him or her. Is that Christian love? Absolutely not. Love thinks no evil, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. So what I'm trying to teach here is that microaggressions can be dealt with on the giving and the receiving side, by an understanding of Christian virtues like Christian love. Okay, another question. We're running out of time, and I have a little bit more to go. Uh, how do you explain the concept of privilege? Concept of privilege. That's another one that comes up here. Let me see if I have, I have the definition here. One second. Privilege. Social privilege is a theory of special advantage or entitlement used to one's own benefit or to the detriment of others. There, uh, these groups can be advantaged based on social class, age, height, nationality, disability, ethnic or racial uh, category, gender, gender identity, neurology, sexual orientation, and religion. Uh, it is generally considered to be a theoretical concept. This is a definition, again, from uh, this one from Wikipedia. 
so it doesn't come from me. Uh, it's generally considered to be a theoretical concept used in a variety of subjects and often linked to social inequality. Privilege is also linked to social and cultural forms of power. It began as an academic concept, but has since been invoked more widely outside of academia. And that is true. What's the one? Yes, they have to say that it's not your own fault if you were accidentally, quote, born into some situation. Uh, that is correct. But it's a social, that's a class-based thing, right? Yes. Um, and it's based on all kinds of different characteristics. Uh, some things are unavoidable that are differences between people. Like in the definition, one of them that I am sensitive to, sensitive to, is height. How do you define privilege based on height? Well, that probably somebody would say, well, taller people tend to be more influential or have better paying jobs or something because of their more imposing persona or something like that. I mean, I have been told by very few times, but a couple of times, it's a little bit, you're a little bit imposing just by nature. I mean, if, if you're a person that's like this and you're having to look up and I'm looking down, well, you're looking down on people, Pastor. Well, <laughs> I'm not doing it that way, you know. But just the, per, the presence in the pulpit of a taller person or the presence in life of a taller person could have some impact on things. Um, you see this in the Bible. Think of Saul. He was a head taller than everybody else. He was uh, the perfect guy for the job. He looks like a king. What's that? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, how do you define privilege based on height? Do you count the number of times that I've hit my head on open cabinet doors? I hate it when that happens. <laughs> The ceilings of low stairwells or doorways, is that how you count, you know, the number of whacks? Um, do you count it when it's hard to bend down and look into the lower shelves of the pantry or the refrigerator for a taller person? Did you ever think of that? No. He, he's so tall, it's so nice, he can reach all this stuff up here. Yeah, you can't reach the stuff down there when, when you get older and you get your bad back. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, the... You see, the, the refrigerators that have the bottom freezer, that's discriminatory against me. <laughs> I think it is helpful. I mean, you, some people might be listening and saying, well, it's inappropriate to make light of these sorts of things. But I think it is helpful to bring some humor to, to it as well. By the way, laughter does good like medicine, doesn't it? Um, you know, you're looking for something in the lower shelf of the refrigerator or pantry, and I can't see it. And somebody who is shorter, I won't say who that is, says, it's right here. Can't you see it? <laughs> oh, that's just the vegetables down there. So, yeah, forget that. We keep all the sweets at the higher shelves. Is that right? Uh, there seems to be short privilege as well if there's, if there's tall privilege. But First, first Samuel 9 speaks about Saul and his impressive height. Goliath had that height advantage as well. Uh, very imposing figure, very scary. Both, however, were unbelievers and died in sin. 
height is a secondary matter that we need to be able to set aside. And Tim, you're right that I didn't come into height by some conniving of my own. It just happened. Uh, maybe nutrition or sleep or whatever helped me to have that outcome. But, I mean, I, I can't really help it. I mean, by the time I was 14 or 15, I was the height that I am now and much skinnier than I am now, by the way. Um, from another angle, height is one of those immutable properties that people are born with. You are what you are. We talked about the malnutrition and the sleep and all that, but basically it's genetic. Similarly, skin color, brain capacity, nationality, all things that just are. I mean, there's some people that have a mind that can grasp music and make it on any kind of instrument, and others that are mathematical and analytical and artistic, and, but there's very few people that are all of those things. Okay? There's just something about people. The people with these characteristics are sort of stuck with them. You know, I did not like being skinny in middle school and high school. It was a sore subject because I was made fun of. But I don't even think about that today. Now, I could. I could say that I had a, there a bunch of microaggressions were uh, imposed upon me. Um, but I don't even remember the names of classmates who made fun of me that way or, or any particular incidents. It's unimportant. And if I were to dwell on it or somehow direct my philosophy by the sin of unkindness from years ago, I would not be demonstrating Christian character, now would I? <clears throat> Forgiveness, even if never transacted with the offender, has a component inside of the offended person that moves beyond the offense. Remember, forgiveness is a three-step thing. Number one, if you've been offended... You become willing to forgive the person who offended you. Number two, the person who did the wrong becomes willing to apologize. And number three, they apologize and you forgive and are reconciled to them. Step one, step two, step three. Now, step two may never happen. You know, the scoundrel may never get to feel convicted about his sin, and so step three then can't happen either. But step one can happen where you become able to just let it go and just say, look, God will take care of it. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to let it eat me from the inside out. According to Christian theology, we treat all people with love, kindness, gentleness, moderation, justice, etc., regardless of the immutable characteristics that they possess. Tall or short, black or white, smart or not in different areas or whatever, whatever nationality. Now, some of the categories in the definition that were given are not Christian categories. Gender identity and sexual orientation are among them, okay? Those are behaviors outside of Christian boundaries. We agree on that, I trust. Some Christians don't today. Some so-called Christians don't agree with that. But Bible-believing Christians believe that uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, those things are not just up for grabs and you can do whatever you want. God has standards for those. Various religions are also outside of the boundary of Christian theology. If you believe ungodly things or walk in ungodly ways, you can expect consequences to come as a natural result. The lack of such consequences cannot be claimed to be privilege for those who obey God and receive his general blessing. Okay? If you study hard and work hard, for example, there are generally better consequences than if you're a poor student and a lazy worker. Okay? So you cannot say that the person who has more has some privilege that everybody should have. 
if they're lazy, they won't have that naturally. Now, I think the worldly and academic definitions look at privilege upside down. I've always felt this, but I, have, I don't know if I've expressed it before, certainly not in a context like this, but the privilege of being in a two-parent home, for example, is not really a privilege in a sense. It's the way God designed things to be. It's an expected baseline. It's a C average grade. Are you with me? Now, the two parents could be jerks, and that lowers the grade from a C to an E. Or the two parents could be great, and that would get them from a C to an A situation. One parent situations may indeed offer more challenges or, quote, deprivilege the children, say, in that situation. I think disadvantage would be a better way of saying it. It's not that the person who is in the baseline situation is privileged. It's the person who is in the other situations is disadvantaged. It is disadvantageous to children for parents to make babies and not stay together. Wouldn't you agree? Then again, it, I mean, somebody's going to say, I know, it may be more advantageous to have one out of two parents uh, that are, you know, if, how can I say it? It'd be better to have one good parent than two parents that are jerks, right? Yeah, okay, of course, we can stipulate that. Um, but we see for this reason, God's special care for orphans and widows in the scripture. Just to take this one area of quote-unquote privilege of two-parent or one-parent families, we see God's special care for people who have become disadvantaged somehow by some circumstances that may be entirely out of their control. That special care is designed by God to do what? Overcome some of the disadvantage and bring them up and help them. That's why God is so upset with people who take disadvantaged people and press them down and make them more disadvantaged. You oppress the worker, you don't pay him his wages, you take his garment away, you oppress the fatherless and the widow, there's going to be consequences for that. And if they don't come immediately, just count on it, they're going to come. So abstractly speaking, if I may, my view of privilege puts the zero point on the number line in a different spot than the worldly definition would consider. So the zero is like the baseline. Below that is disadvantage. It's not that this is the baseline that God wants for us and then everything above that is privilege. Does that make sense? Uh, finally, one more thing. I have, to, I have to get to this and then this will be the end. This one is a, one that has troubled my soul. The question is this. Isn't Christianity a white religion? Isn't it European? Late, a lately uh, uh, article on this was written by Alison Hopper, writing for Scientific American. She titled the article, Denial of Evolution is a Form of White Supremacy. Denial of Evolution is a Form of White Supremacy. She seems to be saying that the evolutionary model shows the human race arose from Africa. So it's centered on Africa, so therefore it's like a good view that insulates the evolutionary view from the charge of racism. The fact of the matter is I have many times charged evolution with, or the evolutionary philosophy as being racist. It is inherently that way. 
that has been used that way, provably so. Now, let me say this. This whole notion that Christianity is a white religion twists evolution into a virtue instead of the vice that it is. Evolution is a key philosophical underpinning for race supremacy philosophies. It was foundational to Hitler's program of extinguishing the Jews and trying to raise the Aryan race to prominence, right? Evolution was used by slavery advocates to justify their actions of enslaving black people. I hope you've encountered that thought before. Evolution is an underpinning to these very sinful views of things. Hopper goes on to write this. At the heart, and I'm just going to read this and then give you a uh, just kind of do what Thurman Hunter does, you know, stop. Uh, At the heart of the white evangelical creationism is the mythology of an unbroken white lineage that stretches back to a light-skinned Adam and Eve. False. That's ridiculous. She goes on. In literal interpretations of the Christian Bible, white skin was created in God's image. Where does it say that? Dark skin has a different, she says, more problematic origin. False again. As the biblical story goes, the curse or mark of Cain for killing his brother was a darkening of his descendant's skin. False. Ah. What we have here actually is not the Christian mythology. We have the mythology of the false teachers like Alison Hopper who are teaching wrongly about Christianity. She's making up a myth which has nothing to do with the Bible. And then she says, historically many congregations in the U.S. pointed to this story of Cain as evidence that black skin was, was created as a punishment. That may be true, but it's not based on the Bible. That was foolishness. Let me, bear, let me repeat this, final thought. Christianity is not a European or white religion. Where did Christianity come from? What region of the world? And it's a Middle Eastern religion. Did you ever think of that? Christianity is a squarely, completely Middle Eastern religion. We are followers of a Middle Eastern man named Jesus and a Middle Eastern people out of which he came called the Jews. That's what it is. It's not Western. It's not European. It arose entirely out of the Middle East. The Bible is a Middle Eastern book, speaking from a human perspective. To say that Christianity is white or of European origin is just plain ignorant. Just plain ignorant. Don't let anybody do that to you, okay? They might be thinking about, you know, their their understanding may stretch back to the beginning of the Catholic Church. Well, the Middle Ages, and it's European, and the Holy Roman Empire, which wasn't holy, and it wasn't Roman, and all that. Their understanding does not stretch back far enough, if there's understanding there at all. It's a twisting. It's a myth that Christianity is a white religion. Uh, answers in Genesis posits, and I think it's probably good that God created Adam and Eve with some middle skin tone, Middle meaning not the uh, albino white and not the completely dark black, but somewhere in the middle with genetically all the variation that would allow for the range of coloration that God wanted. He didn't want everybody to be the same color. 
and to be the same shape and size and to have the same brain and to be robots. He's created a race of great diversity to show his glory, to show his creative power that out of two human beings would come billions of souls that are entirely different in skills and looks and heights and colors and all that sort of stuff, glorious, glorious things. So I think uh, I have to stop because it's way late, but I hope that's been helpful to you uh, today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to ask that you would help us to understand these matters carefully. Lord, if anyone is listening and has misunderstood, help them to uh, not default to the position of uh, anger and hatred and taking offense, but reach out and talk. Let's have a conversation, as the world says. Let us reason together about these things so that you might understand our perspective better and we might understand your perspective better and have our uh, conversation be mutually edifying. I pray that that would be the approach that we would use with folks in our lives and they with us. And Lord, help us. One of the key things that we learned in this lesson today is the character trait that we must have of loving forgiveness toward one another. That we would not immediately jump to, it's a microaggression, but we would speak with one another. We would care for one another. We would be gentle and kind, not vengeful, not hateful, not angry. And that we would thus, in our softness and our gentleness and our moderation, would come to a more loving conclusion than what the world is propagating these days in hate and anger. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.